This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. What is wrong with Congress? Uh, that's a question with a lot of layers. Uh, and with us to discuss it is Norm Ornstein. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a former Roll Call columnist, and probably one of a handful of people on earth who know the most about the institution of Congress. Norm, it's a pleasure to have you on Political Theater. I can't believe we haven't had you on before. I'm delighted to be here, and I won't hold it against you that you haven't had me on before. So, I mean, I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't trying to be glib about what is wrong with Congress. Um, I mean, I think that by any objective standard, this is an organization uh, that is dysfunctional. Uh, they lurch sort of from crisis to crisis. They miss deadlines all the time. They treat each other. They, they speak to each other in ways that would get you fired anywhere else <laughs> uh, in any other, you know, kind of organization. Um, I, I think, you know, let, let's start with, you know, just like the, ba- the basic job of Congress is to fund the government. And this is something that they, they miss deadlines all the time on this. I think the last time they passed all 12 spending bills before the beginning of a fiscal year was more than 20 years ago. Um, what, let's just start there before we get to the broader things of, of, of the political things. Why can't they ever hit their deadlines on this most basic duty? So let me start by saying that uh, in 2012, Tom Ann and I did a book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks About Congress. <laughs> And I I chose the title very deliberately because it never looks good. It's not designed to look good. It's not designed to be efficient. It's designed to be inefficient. But it's absolutely true that for a very, very long time, the fiscal end of things, getting your appropriations bills done on time, has almost never happened. It is far more rare that they hold to a schedule than that they don't. And there, and you know, one of the things to keep in mind for a long time, um, the fiscal year actually ran to the middle of the year. It was as many businesses have it, uh, June 30th, the new fiscal year started July one. And during that six month period, actually a little less than six months, they were supposed to do all of their appropriations bills, and they couldn't get them done. So they thought they were making a huge advance when they switched to the full year, and now they'd have a whole year and the same thing happened. So why? Uh, And I think the fundamental reason is this. When you do spending bills, when you do appropriations, when you do taxing, you're not just doing some narrow fiscal function. You're actually setting your priorities. You are deciding who's going to benefit, who is going to be hurt. And these are critically difficult decisions. And it is human nature, if you're into a difficult negotiation, that you do an end game. You will often just put it off to the end. I, you know, when I, I wrote columns about this uh, for Roll Call many, many years ago, and I used the analogy of athletes and their negotiations over contracts. And you would sit back and think, 
So here is a uh, professional uh, baseball player or a professional football player who is going to make millions of dollars. And they wait until the final minute and then they hold out and they lose money along the way or they can't play and they get out of shape. Why would you do something so stupid? But the reality is that you think that when you get close to the end, you're going to have more leverage. And for many, in many cases with athletes, it's right. If you're a star and you say, I'm not going to come in and play until you meet my contract demands and the team suffers as a consequence, the owners are going to think about maybe it's uh, better to give a little bit more than we had before. If you are in labor management negotiations and you take it right to the end and maybe even to a strike, then you're going to end up with leverage. And uh, people in political life want leverage. Presidents want that leverage, but the members of Congress in both houses want the leverage. And so things slide. And uh, it's the other part of this is if you're doing a, a budget, if you're doing appropriations, they normally start in the House and the House takes some time and then they go to the Senate and whether it is appropriations or legislation or almost anything else, keeping to a timetable in the Senate is much, much harder than it is in the House. We could get into many of the reasons for that, um, but it's never going to look good. And oftentimes it can lead to drastic miscalculations, shutdowns to the government, uh, disruption in people's lives. Uh, there can be losers in this process. But frankly, no, nothing that you do in structural terms is going to do away with the human nature of wanting to have as much leverage as you possibly can when very important decisions of values, not just money, come into play. And, and I feel like we're seeing that right now with the current debate over, you know, on one hand, the infrastructure bill that has bipartisan support, and on the other hand, this big reconciliation package, which is looking to expand the social safety net. And, and you see the, even though, you know, Democrats are nominally in the majority, but they are in the majority in both houses and they control the White House, uh, that it is a question of values. That's what you see some of these sort of almost they're, they're getting almost kind of personal uh, in, in, say, the way Joe Manchin on one hand and Premier Jayapal on the other hand are kind of criticizing each other about, well, don't you care about the X, Y, and Z? And it, it, is, it seems that even, even in a situation where you have unified control, again, nominally, it's, it's very narrow majorities, uh, it, this value proposition comes up, as you describe it. If you have a 50-50 Senate, and you have a Republican party in the nominal minority, they don't have the majority status, they don't have the presidency, and they're unwilling to provide votes for anything except in a narrow way that may serve their short-term political interest, which is what we saw with the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And you could make a strong case that Mitch McConnell decided to give the go-ahead to some of his members to do this very narrow bill on physical infrastructure, because he feared that if they tried to obstruct that, it would lead almost inexorably to a change in the filibuster rule. And that if they did this, and they would have some uh, so-called moderate Democratic allies in the House, um, like Josh Gottheimer, they might be able to jam it through. And once they got that through, they might be able to keep anything else from happening. 
So this was not a great triumph of bipartisanship nearly as much as it was a tactical ploy to try and limit the damage. Um, but if you've got just 50 and you're only going to be able to get a majority with those 50, every single one of them has leverage. And almost inevitably, a couple of them are going to use that leverage. You mentioned Pramila Jayapal and uh, Joe Manchin, but of course, the striking um, sort of uh, standoff of sorts uh, came with uh, Bernie Sanders writing a piece uh, taking on Manchin in a West Virginia newspaper, and the two of them going after each other in some ways. But then they met together as Manchin met with Jayapal. And what we're seeing is a lot of the press coverage, which is inevitable that these negotiations are going over the cliff, they're not going to get anywhere, they're making these insane demands that couldn't possibly be met, are also a part of a negotiation that takes you to the end game. And I think we're getting pretty close to the end game. Now, I would add that, you know, it, it can happen when you've got just 50. But as we saw with the Affordable Care Act, it can happen when you have 60, but every one of the 40 in the minority will oppose you no matter what you do to accommodate them. Then every one of those 60 has leverage. So you could say, for example, that there is one reason why the Affordable Care Act uh, a decade ago did not include a public option, and that is Joe Lieberman, the senator from Connecticut, the home of big insurance companies, who, uh, knowing that they needed all 60 Democrats, made as his demand that they take out a public option that would compete with insurance companies. And there were other concessions made to other members. Uh, and that's, I think, a key point that for all of the usual problems that make Congress going back to the beginning, but certainly in the decades we've been alive where it has so many responsibilities, look terrible at trying, meandering through trying to do something even basic on a fundamental problem or set of problems facing the country. But we're in different territory now. This is tribal territory, and we, you know, effectively we have a party in the minority that's behaving as if we were in a parliamentary system. And in a parliamentary system, a majority can act. Um, but in our system, it makes it so much harder to get even fundamental things done, and it can lead to very dangerous consequences. And, you know, you've written about the filibuster and, you know, I mean, the filibuster has been sort of steadily chipped away at, you know, not, not just in the last few years on judicial nominees and executive nominees, but dating back to the 70s when, you know, the threshold was higher. Do you see this, you know, the filibuster surviving in its form? Because, I mean, this is what, you know, a lot of Democrats are saying, if you just got rid of the filibuster, we could pass all this great stuff, but you'd still... I mean, there, you, as you said, I mean, like you'd still have people who would want to extract every single concession that they could, you know, in, in the majority or minority. We would not get some enormous stream of dramatic and radical legislation if there were no filibuster, but we would be getting some things. We would be getting pretty easily this voting uh, rights measure, the Protect the Vote Act. We would be getting, just to pick another example, the Manchin-Toomey gun bill, which was a bipartisan achievement uh, done by two 
senators with A-plus ratings from the National Rifle Association to provide universal background checks that are supported by over 90% of Americans that then got filibustered uh, back when it was done in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. And you'd get that now and probably a little bit more. And we would likely have already gotten some measure of a broader infrastructure uh, done. And there will be other areas, including climate change, where there would be a difference. But you're absolutely right that uh, with just 50 votes in the Senate and 50 senators who represent very different constituencies and with different viewpoints, and you're going to have to negotiate among yourselves because you're not going to get votes from the other side. Uh, it's tricky to make things happen. Now, I think the great irony here is um, the defenders of the filibuster talk about it as this is the way to uh, force bipartisan cooperation. In a tribal era, it has exactly the opposite effect. There is no incentive for the minority to work with the majority because they can stop everything without even lifting a little baby finger. If you didn't have the filibuster as it is now, let's say you had a variation. Let's say you had the variation that I wrote about years ago in Roll Call and written about in other places, worked with uh, former Senator Al Franken on when he was in the Senate and after, which is you put the burden on the minority, which is where it was uh, back before 1975, basically, um, by flipping the numbers. Instead of 60 required to end debate, you have 41 required to be on the floor continuously to continue debate. Under those circumstances, if the minority knows that the bill is going to pass without them, then they've got an incentive to say, you know what, if you just make these concessions, we'll give you more votes and make it bipartisan. So that's the great irony. If you uh, modified the filibuster, you would have more bipartisan cooperation, not less. And I think there's a very real chance uh, sometime in before the end of the year that we will see a modification. I don't frame it as eliminating or weakening the filibuster. I have framed it as restoring the filibuster, giving a role for the minority, but making it very clear that if you want to try to obstruct something where you are in the minority, you're going to have to go all out and uh, expend an enormous amount of effort and energy to do so. And you're only going to do it in matters that are intensely important to you. And even with that, if they're even more important to the majority, they're going to find ways to wear you down over a period of time. And you'll get a public debate on it, which is the other element of this. The filibuster is supposed to be about endless debate. Now it's about endless obstruction with zero debate. You just raise your hand and say, like, I'm filibustering. Yeah. I mentioned Manchin. <laughs> that shuts Cooney. it down. So, you know, the House passed two gun control bills uh, this year, including a universal background check uh, bill. Have you seen any stories about them? No. And why? Because why write a story about something that's never even going to come up for a vote in the Senate because they can't break the filibuster? If you could know that to block this, they're going to have to be there on the floor, around the clock, Mondays, Fridays, weekends, three in the morning votes. You're going to get a lot of attention paid to it. And if they have to debate it when they're on the floor and have to be germane about it, no reading green eggs and ham, 
you're going to have a bunch of people who are going to have to explain why they are trying to block something that 94% of Americans favor so that they can do favors for the uh, gun manufacturers and the National Rifle Association. And you're very likely to accomplish the goal after some pain. And I, I wonder, I mean, like there, you know, history is, you know, sort of replete with examples of times when we have been more tribal and we sort of get out of it. I mean, are where do you think we are? I mean, we are, as you said, we're in a tribal time in Congress, that's in, in our society, and that's reflected in their representatives in, in Congress. Where do you think we are? You know, what's your best guess of where we are on the cycle? Are we in the middle of it? Are we nearing the end? Is it just beginning? Um, you know, this, I guess this is the fundamental question of are you an optimist or a pessimist or a realist? Uh, where do you think we are in terms of this level of dysfunction and hot-blooded sort of tribalism in government? Uh, well, I would say on the one hand, I am modestly optimistic that we will get the Protect the Vote Act that will give us some guardrails against stealing elections and really destroying even more of the, uh, Americans' trust in our election system, which is the fundamental building block of the democracy. I think we could end up uh, uh, with a year in which, with a three-vote margin effectively in the House and no margin of error in the Senate, we see quite a lot of dramatic legislation get through. But in terms of the sickness of the system, the divisions internally, the lack of focus together on solving problems, even if you have different ways of approaching them, but trying to uh, find ways to compromise. We are a long way from uh, seeing the light of day on that one. And, uh, you know, uh, there are no angels here, but the fact is, especially if you look at what happened with the debt ceiling, and we're not over that one yet, Remember that it was Mitch McConnell back in 2011 who said that this is a hostage worth taking. It's a different attitude. And it's a different attitude when you have a minority leader who, you know, in the Obama administration said his number one goal was to make Obama a one-term president, but now says 100% of his efforts and the efforts of everyone in his party are focused on blocking all the elements of Joe Biden's agenda. You know, some of Joe Biden's agenda is to deal with problems that we all face. And in a different era, there would have been hand-to-hand -hand combat between the parties, but an understanding that you've got to try and solve those problems. And I think when I look at uh, some of the members now and the next uh, generation coming forward, the candidates, uh, I just don't see for a significant period of time whether we get to a point where we're just carping about Congress's inability to act in the usual fashion instead of in the unusual and very, very dangerous fashion that we have now. Well, that's, those are some hard truths, uh, but I appreciate you sharing uh, with, with us and, and talking to us, Norm. I, I, uh, like I said, we, we, uh, we will have you on again because, I, as I said, I, it's, it's hard to believe we haven't, uh, we haven't you know, met. I mean, we're, we're remote. Uh, maybe someday we will meet <laughs> uh, in person, but but thank you so much, you know, for for talking to us about this, and uh, and we will we will talk to you again another time. I'll take that as a promise. <laughs> <laughs>